You're listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author Sarah Box, where you get the inside scoop on the steps action takers and decision makers take to align their purpose to their principles and achieve their goals in business and life. We focus on the mantra, no labels, no limits, no excuses. And now, without further ado, please welcome your commanding coach with plenty of chutzpah and heart, Sarah Box. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah, your host of the No Labels, No Limits podcast. Thanks so much for joining us this week for another great episode. Um, And this guest today was introduced to me through a mutual friend of ours and through someone that I like to say is a brother from another mother. And truthfully, I feel like Ken, who linked us together, is someone who... um, kind of always feels present around, you know, bringing his good vibes and connecting good people. And for that, I feel super fortunate to be able to share with you Douglas Haddad today. I'm going to tell you a little bit about him, and then we're just going to get right into the interview with Doug. First of all, he is an award-winning teacher and best-selling author of The Ultimate Guide to Raising Teens and Tweens, Strategies for Unlocking Your Child's Full Potential. See the link to No Labels, No Limits. He's taught over 2,500 students in 20 years, 22 years, actually, as an educator. And he's worked with kids from all different backgrounds and abilities. Most recently, he has written, directed, and produced the 2022 short film, Butterfield, which focuses on the specific themes related to bullying, anxiety, depression, feeling alone, outcast, you know, all of the themes that have actually been heightened over the last two years due to the pandemic even. And he has been on stage singing, playing piano, writing music, performing voiceovers for various companies and products, and acting in theatrical performances, film, television, and commercials over the years. Hmm, got any instruments handy there, Doug? Oh, I sure do. They're all around me if I move this camera. (laughs) Okay. We may ask for an impromptu kind of little show for you. Um, But I really like this. When when I was looking through your material and learning more about you, I liked that you have this quote, which I've paraphrased a little. But you say that you like to remind us all that we are never alone. And there are always people in the physical realm or those who crossed over who are there to guide us in times of need and great uncertainty and through the great mystery of life. So why do you say that? And welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Sarah. It's an honor to be here. And I'm uh, glad to be speaking on this topic that I feel is very important today in our society um, because there's so many people out there, especially the young people that I teach. And as a teacher of 22 years, as you mentioned, I've come across so many different youth that have experienced so much and continue to experience so much. And nowadays, today, the social emotional component of things is ever so grave. I mean, we're seeing with COVID, not just kids, but adults, they're really struggling and longing for uh, purpose and for normalcy and for connectedness. And losing that sociability has really taken a toll on kids I see at school. So I wanted to write a film that is empowering, uplifting, inspiring, and really transformative at the core of the human existence. So I know from over the years, and I I get tingles, chills just talking about this, but I was very close to my grandparents, especially my maternal ones. And when both of them passed, 
I saw so many things pop up with signs that just came from another place from beyond. And that's why I say in the film, when I talk about spirit guides, talk about these are, these are, could be humans, could be animals, could be anyone that crosses your path through the time. And they seem to appear when things are uncertain or you really need um, hope in your life. So if you keep an open mind to it and you look around every single day, there's signs whether it's uh, something that just comes across your radio, like a, a song that reminds you of somebody that passed on, or if it's somebody that just says something in the moment. And it, it's just, it's the little things. And I've seen it time and time again, and it seems to be timely and timeless. So I wanted to do that in this film so young people out there can experience this realm because I think the young people are really the ones so receptive and so open to it. And they also take things to heart where they're like, oh, there's nobody who understands me. Um, I've only been through this. And, and we know, too, the rates of suicide, depression, anxiety has skyrocketed. So that's the real big premise for why I made this film, Butterfield. And there's some, and there's some creatures in this film that have appeared in my backyard on a frequent basis, one of them being foxes. Now, I will tell you this because the premiere hasn't happened yet. It's going to happen this Friday um, at my school at Henry James in Simsbury. But I will be showing something that happened about two days ago. And since we talk about foxes, and foxes represent strength through times of uncertainty and great change. So just a couple of days ago, my wife looks out the window and she says, look out the window. There's a family of foxes out there. There were five baby foxes and the oh. mom and dad were out there. So and we've been seeing foxes in our backyard now for the past year, ever since we've gone through writing this film. And now all of a sudden, right before the premiere, the family of foxes appears. So there you go right there. So let me ask you, what part of the country do you live in? I live in Connecticut. Okay. And it's pretty fair to say that it's not common to see foxes all the time. And let alone to see them in your backyard, let alone to see a whole family of foxes born. Yeah. What a gift, though. Oh, incredible. Uh, just amazing. And, and another thing is another animal, spirit animal in there is the butterfly. And the butterfly I chose because if you think about it, one of the first things you learn in early elementary science is you learn the whole metamorphosis process. It goes from a caterpillar and all the way up to a butterfly. So with that being said, the butterfly is a symbol of that change, that metamorphosis. And one of the things, one of the characters in there, Renard, he mentions too, he says, if you wish to become acquainted with the butterflies, you have to learn how to rise above a few caterpillars. So that has a little symbolism where, you know, you might fall upon some obstacles or even some juveniles, bullies, but you have to learn how to rise above them if you want to fly with the eagles. And so when we went there to scout out the place, I'm looking around and all of a sudden I see these butterflies. So I film it. And I got it. I got this one butterfly that came right in and went out, flapped its wings, stayed in front of me in front of the camera and went away. I said, there's an ending shot to the film right there. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> so, yes. That's that okay. Was... Some things are okay to be spoiled about. And besides, right. that way, it's something to look forward to and go, oh, I, I got to stick with it. I want to see that as well. So what was your background growing up? You talked about being super close to your maternal grandparents and then feeling connected after they passed. What was your spiritual background growing up? Was, were you like, oh, Doug, don't talk about that or you're crazy or it's like, of course, that's part of our existence. 
Yeah, I just think it naturally always seemed to happen. It just seemed like I was always surrounded by some spirit guides or angels, and I felt like they were there to guide me along the way. And I'll tell you what, as an only child, I had a great childhood. My parents, fantastic parents. Um, I grew up in a suburban community. It was a small community at the time. I don't even think we had 10,000 people. It was like eight or 9,000 in the town, and then it grew over time. But uh, in my neighborhood, unfortunately, we did have, um, for lack of better words, some boys who were not kind. And one in particular was sort of the neighborhood bully. Now, long story short is he would be an adversary to me. And for whatever reason, I was always a, a child who would, would listen, would do the right thing, and would not follow the crowd and do anything that was not what you're supposed to do. Well, sometimes kids necessarily don't like that if they're trying to experiment with things and you're not following the crowd. So that's what ended up happening. And I think a lot of times through all that adversity, which happened over a number of years, you know, there was physical and mental bullying that went on. Um, it went on at school. It went on on the bus. It went on in the neighborhood where I'd be afraid to go walk up the street and I'd see him and, and his corralled group of um, comrades. So I, I just learned inherently um, through my dealings and there wasn't really any specific thing that enlightened me, but I felt like I was always surrounded by this, this light, this strength to just exude it. And I'll tell you what, a lot of kids nowadays who experience that, they can really go into this shamed mode and start hurting themselves or they can go into this guilt mode and they can hurt others and become you know, very dangerous. I was a child who had perfect attendance. I, that didn't deter me from going to school every year, except for third and seventh grade. I missed a day each time. But from K it's still bugging you all these years later. It is, yeah. I, I think my parents, I think they won some extra day at a vacation in third grade. They're like, we're going to have to come back a day later. I'm like, I can't miss school. They're like, yes, you can. <laughs> so, but uh, so I think I always felt that as an only child, maybe it was partly in my head as imagination growing up, playing myself, because um, I was always into making stories. I was into making music. I played instruments in early age and I told stories. I had a, a camcorder in my hand when I was 11, 12 years old. I was filming everything. So I think a lot of that melded in and maybe even opened up to that realm. I, I was flat out very vulnerable at the time. I think when that those barriers are shed, things come into your life that give you this kind of like whew, feeling that guides you. And, and that's all I can really say. It's that feeling of guidance. Yeah, no, I understand that. And I, I'm curious, like I was thinking about you being a young boy, a young man, and that those experiences, and then the noise, and I don't mean just the volume, but just the constant noise that comes in and for all of us, but then for youth, and especially if you're on a screen, mm -hmm. you know, and it's so you're getting these sub subtext messages um, by looking at other people where you can easily start saying, I don't measure up, I'm not like that. That makes it even extra hard, right? And especially if you're isolated, you mm -hmm. don't have anybody to say to you, well, why would you think that's even real? You know, have you heard of airbrushing? Have you heard about like just showing the A reel of your life? But there's all this other stuff going on. And there's no history of overcoming tough stuff at a really young age, you know? 
I honestly didn't have the coping skills. I would say I, I just, and my, and my parents, they, they did the best they could. My mother would tell me, go tell a teacher or try to walk away from the situation. Um, violence doesn't beget, you know, violence. You don't want to just fight fire with fire. So I learned if I was like picked on, go tell a teacher. Teacher didn't always solve the problem because, oh, maybe in the classroom it didn't happen, but in the halls, on the bus, in the locker rooms, in the neighborhood where they weren't there. We know, I know that as a teacher, and you know that too, um, that that's where the, the prevalence with bullying takes place. And, and then ultimately, it did come to a head one day, and uh, I'll never forget, May 1988, in fifth grade for me, when we went in the ba boys' bathroom and we were washing our hands. It was my best friend and I were at the sinks. And then the bully came out of the stall and he asked my best friend, he said, are you friends with Haddad over here? And nobody's ever stood up for me. And that's, that's a very important thing to do to end bullying is not be a bystander, not be an accomplice to it. And bystanders are the worst because they could do something about it and they let it happen. And nowadays kids are not just bystanders, they're filming it. Filming. It's, it's doubly worse. And, and they're putting on social media, which is, <laughs> Can't again imagine. worse right and and so he actually he just looked real quick when he kind of pushed him and he looked at him he goes i asked you are you friends with haddad and he goes yes he's my best friend and then at that point um he ended up saying oh okay and he he kind of cheap shot at him and and took him and hit him into the soap dispenser and soap went everywhere and uh my best friend you know he, he fell down he he started crying and he left the room and at that point I actually, at that point, took matters in my own hands. And uh, long story short, I was sitting in the office with a police officer next to me. <laughs> and, uh, and it was the bully's parents. And they said, you know, you're in hot water, the teacher said. And I don't think he really understood the, the, the backstory to what we dealt with. However, the bully's mother said, um, when the police officer says, do you want to press charges on this uh, boy? And I, I was like, am I living in a dream or a nightmare? Right. And the mom goes, no. Not at all. I know what my son has put this boy through. And wow. I was looking at the adults like, that's a strong mom right there. And, and unfortunately, that mom was probably suffering from her own abuse because now looking as an adult, the, the child who, you know, inflicted a lot of that on me, his father was a raging, unfortunately, alcoholic. And, um, and, that's, and that's where it stems from. So teaching kids coping skills, also teaching them there's a reason why if you're picked on because something's probably happening in their life. I wasn't told any of that. So but it, it doesn't just... excuse the behavior. I mean, even if you had known that cognitively as a young man and that bathroom scene happened, you're not going to say, you know, I know that you're only bullying us because blah, blah, blah. Yes, exactly. It's <laughs> not going to happen. No, it's not. And I never could get people around me rallied to stand up. And, and that's the thing. So I think that moment where my best friend actually got triggered himself and said those words was all the difference for me to have enough internal power to then yeah. take my own hands. And ultimately, pretty much solved it from that point on. But it was years in the making, and it just kept building and building until the end of elementary school when it ended with him. Well, and that's um, having worked in like the domestic violence world. That's one of the things they talk about dating violence, too. It's like when you're out and you're seeing something, you can't just be a bystander. And it's not filming it. It's like standing there and being mm -hmm. with somebody standing up with them or calling for help because often they can't do it for themselves. So that's a powerful thing. What a great friend.
you know, to stand up. And I bet his stomach was turning at the time going, oh, he is my best friend, but I see what's coming. Exactly. I think that's exactly right. He, and he knew um, in large part what I have been dealing with. And uh, yeah, I'll never forget that day at all. I'm <laughs> curious, life. you know, you could have taken all kinds of internal messages into adulthood from your own experiences with bullying that would have limited you. Like you could have just turned in on yourself like you were talking about earlier. So how did you take your own experiences and turn them toward what you're doing now, which is to helping others that were in that same age group you were and through your teaching and writing and your filmmaking? I think as I think it was Hillary Clinton who said, you know, it takes a village, you know, to raise a child. And many people said that, but that was sort of famously quoted by her. But uh, it is something that was my, my parents always gave me a safe, protective place. So I felt emotionally safe with my parents um, outside of all the noise. So I had a safe place to come back to. I was I was loved. I felt special, you know, probably as an only child, too, and the only grandchild for my grandparents. I think I felt a lot of that. And through success academically, I had athletically, musically, I was, you know, very much blessed in many regards. My teachers noticed it. You know, I got accepted into a talented and gifted program in fourth grade. So I started inherently knowing that there's something special about me, despite all this going on. And I think I kind of had that feeling there was jealousy from the bully. Um, he didn't have the life that I had. And I think he knew that. Um, and then as a result of that, I had teachers too that as time went on said, you know what? They gave me opportunities to, to lead. I got asked to do the, um, the graduation speech in middle school. I uh, got asked a bunch of times end of high school to actually just lead and teach a class of kids. And they said, and one of my gym teachers said, who went on to be a principal said, you know, you demonstrate a lot of great leadership and you're a smart boy, but there's a lot of smart people in the world. But I think a lot of people are going to look up to you and listen because you're a person of your word and you demonstrate great character and integrity. And that's why a lot of your classmates listen and look up to you. Uh, and then what happened in my neighborhood is I, along with the bully, we were the younger crowd, if you will. There was some kids a few years older than us and others like five, six, and even 10. And they would all kind of see what I went through. But over time, a lot of them left. I was still in the neighborhood. The other kid who was the bully, he went off to boarding school, actually, and then he bounced around other schools and he left the neighborhood. And then a new group of kids came in and they started to play with me. And I was like four years older, five years older. I was the old one in the neighborhood. And they all took a kin to me um, and I would teach them how to play basketball. I would teach them like how to like ride a remote car around, uh, play football, frisbee. And then it was more and more and more kids. I said, wow, I'm never going to tell them about my past because kids can be kids. I don't want them to think like I'm weak or anything. I just suddenly became empowered and they looked at me kind of like I was their hero. And, uh, and I got to really feel self-worth. And then when I went into teaching, that was my main premise of going to teaching. I wanted to make sure no child ever felt bullied or uh, outcast. And that was my main mission, not because I loved a certain subject. It was because I loved children and I wanted to make sure the next generation of kids didn't um, get scorned at all and were accepted. So that teacher told you you had great character, yeah. right? How did that, I mean, that's high praise. I mean, yeah. that is, that's not like, oh, good job on your test. 
you can play a great instrument, but telling someone they have good character and integrity, that lays down railroad tracks to follow. It did. And it really, with uh, great responsibility uh, in that way, great power comes great responsibility. And I felt at that moment, wow, that was uh, something beautifully stated to me. And I never really even thought about it. I just know I was taught always to do the right thing. Um, I'll be honest with you now, I'm not bragging a badge of honor, but I've never tried a cigarette. I've barely sipped alcohol, had like a champagne toasting somebody, never tried a beer in my life, never tried drugs, um, never gambled. So I'm not saying that people who did are, are bad by any means, but I'm saying I got taught in an early age to, to say no. And I think probably because I was bullied at an early age, I knew what that felt like, but I overcame it at an early age. Um, I remember 13 years old, <laughs> and 10 months to the, to the month when my quote unquote friends were eating at lunch, they just all got up spontaneously and they left. They all went to another table and they left me by myself. I felt kind of, as a middle school kid, you're like, what's going on? And they thought it was funny. Well, and for, for many months after that, they ignored me. So there was this weird dynamic going on. And I won't even get into the middle school years where a different group of kids kind of would say other things. And, and even just being ignored or completely outcast is really like a form of bullying. And I remember my social studies teacher was doing lunch duty and she comes over to me and she actually went to high school with my father. So um, she knew me and my, my dad, obviously growing up. And she was, she was Douglas, she was, don't uh, worry about their, their jerks, those kids. He goes, I feel so bad. Um, don't worry, I'm gonna do something about this. And I said, no, there's not, at 13, I said, I'm not worried about it. I said, it's fine. And then at that moment, I was feeling, am I feeling self-conscious? How am I gonna feel depressed? Am I feeling like pathetic, a loser? And suddenly, no, I felt empowered. I said, they can eat by themselves. And then I sat back and ate proudly, but I made a choice to take that perception and the reaction to that event in a positive way. And and that's something I learned. I learned from Jack Canfield. I know we're going to talk go there. about No, I do. Because when you said choice, and I think about that often um, in when I'm coaching people, when they're saying, well, I can't do this or this happened, I'm thinking, okay, but you have a choice of how you internalize that. Yes. And I'm not um, minimizing the experience or saying that's not a big deal, if, but you do have a choice in this moment because that moment's gone. So it's what do you want to do with it now? So talk about Jack Canfield. So folks who are listening, Doug worked with Jack Canfield. Doug was the podcast host of the Empower Our podcast. Did I get that right? Yes. Okay. So he worked with Jack Canfield and other really people who are in the forefront of the leadership self-help kind of movement. So talk a little bit about that because Jack Canfield is someone I started listening to on cassette tape that tells yes. you how long ago that was um and really so so powerful jack canfield to me was introduced by my grandmother and it was when i got a book from my grandmother for a gift and my grandmother used to get these books called for those of you out there who haven't heard of jack canfield he's one of the co-authors along with mark victor hansen of the chicken soup for the soul series what an incredible story about how they went about and got rejected multiple times, but ultimately sold over what it was 500 million copies of that book, one of the all-time best-selling nonfiction books. Well, my, my grandmother gave me a book, which was Chicken Soup for the Soul for the Teenage Soul. 
And I remember reading these empowering stories about teenagers going through different uh, adversity and coming out. And really, it talked a lot about uh, signs in the invisible realm and how there's people there to help you. And it was magical, that book to me. So, and then I started digging into his other works. Well, years went by, probably a good decade, decade and a half. And then Jack Canfield actually evolved in his career and took a bit of a transition. And he went into the self-help realm into developing the success principles. So... This is where years went by. I would say I'm, you know, at a point now where I developed and I did short little segments before I did the empower hour. I used to do these empower minute segments on all kinds of topics, uh, just short snippets. But then I end up saying to myself, I want to find people and I'm going to start with one of my uh, childhood heroes, Jack Canfield, to have on the empower hour. So lo and behold, he was the first guest to ever add. And we had an hour-long conversation. How'd you oh. manifest that one, Doug? Oh, I. <laughs> that's a good question. So it's probably the spirit guides. <laughs> well, I'm saying, did you know him prior to that? No, I did not personally know him. I sent letters out to him when he had his P.O. box in Santa Barbara. And I would write to him, but I never would hear anything back. And I think it was when the internet started to come about and then I must have found his agent, something like that, and reached out, and then it started the connection. And I introduced myself, I told him who I was, and then I told him I have a podcast, and I said, I don't know if Jack's gonna go for somebody who's just starting out, and I remember he said, he goes, he goes you can say no to certain things, learn how to say no, but never to opportunities like this, whether it appears like there's 100 viewers or 100 million viewers. Right. So, so he, he taught me a lot. Oh, grandma was there in many different ways. She sure was, boy, I'll tell you. And, and, and to the point of what we were talking about before with how your reaction to things determines a lot of the outcome, that's what Jack was all about. He said, E plus R equals L. And I went through his training and there's you know tons of hours of training um, and it, it, the event happens. Okay, let's say again, for example, I'm just going to use a simple for in school terms, a kid fails a test. All right. And what's the reaction? Usually it's like, oh, man. Well, okay. Now the outcome is the result of that. So is it, oh man, I'm stupid? Or, oh man, I should have studied. I should have paid attention. So are you putting the emphasis on yourself or are you putting the emphasis on your effort? And those are two different things. And that's where the, the whole thing of shame and guilt come in. So if somebody feels like they've been outcasted, they've been bullied, they've been shamed, they tend to put self-inflicting things on, like I said, themselves. But if they feel like they're been trying to make guilty of something, but it's as a result of somebody else doing it, and it's not affecting them, then they could be upset. It's the other way around. It could result actually in violence or you know, anger and aggression on that person, that source. So Jack really taught a lot with that. Uh, I know Tony Robbins, uh, he's another one. He just literally says, you hear the finger snap, snap. Okay, next, forget it, flush it out. You know, I've had kids in my classroom where they talk about the past because I teach seventh graders. They say, well, when I was in elementary school, I had a teacher and I studied this. I said, snap, delete. Okay, you're in middle school now, brand new story. You're the author of your own life. So where do you want to go with this? So I put it in their court. And I think that's a lot of what I learned from these speakers I've had. I've had Dr. John D. Martini on. 
Um, he's a great one. The, the values factor is a great book. Um, I've had Marianne Williamson on wow. oh, talk about, you know, really a wealth of knowledge. And I think she ran, she ran for president of the United States too. She made a, a, a pretty good run in the democratic party. Uh, I've had on Zig Ziglar's son, Tom Ziglar, and he was another great self-help motivational he guy. Is super. Don't you think? I really oh. like his balance when he is, you can throw stuff at him, but he just steps back and can see a synthesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He used to talk about his preparation. I mean, talk about work ethic and goals. He would be on the plane and all he would do is he would spend his whole time on the plane, jotting down everything. He'd script everything he would do and go over and over and over and over and over. Talk about somebody who practiced, practiced. And, you know, and he even talked about Zig Ziglar. He's talking about motivation. He goes, it's kind of like taking a shower. You need it every single day. And you can't just say something good to somebody once and think that's going to be it. You have to continue to uplift yourself and you have to make that decision. You can't wait for somebody to do it. How do you translate what you learned there into your teaching and your books and, and your film? And I do want to circle back to the film, but um, I think about that question about motivation, about standing up, showing up, taking the metaphorical shower, right? You just yes. take off your clothes and get into it and then get out and get on with it. Um, you don't have to think about it like, oh, do I want to shower? When did I shower? It's just go do it. Go just, do it. Just get it done. Um, so how do you take all of the lessons at, from the folks you've talked to and with your own growth, your own development, and bring it to the middle schoolers, the teens and the tweens, um, in a way that they can own it for themselves. I try to put myself back first and foremost in their shoes. So I try to think what it's like to be back in the seats of a science room in middle school or what it was like to walk in and see your favorite or least favorite teacher or see somebody you don't like in class, your best friend. So there's a lot of emotions that go on. It's tumultuous times. So, I mean, if I think too much about it, I can't teach because I'm like, oh. <laughs> no, you can go, the minute you said that, walking into class, I'm thinking, oh my yeah. God, I, I know the exact class. Yeah, I, I, know. I saw you sweating a little bit. You're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> I love school, but there were a couple of teachers I thought, oh, this is going to be a brutal semester. <laughs> exactly. It's so true. And I, I just try to connect with them that way. I try to show care, compassion, empathy. And once you do that and you connect with a child, you've opened up really all doors to be able to impact their life. And that's where my motivation comes from. It comes from them. It comes from knowing that I could be the only source of their support, their love, their care, their kindness. And if, and I, and I have to really remind myself of that every day, because you can get in that sort of rat circle. Life could be on automatic for you. And I hear a lot of people say, oh, happy Friday, or oh, I'm doing good for a Monday, oh, hump day, you know, it's, it's all funny stuff, but in reality, every single day is a beautiful day, and that's why they say, what's that saying, um, yesterday is history, tomorrow's a mystery, and today's a gift, that's why yeah. they call it the present, so that's how I live life, and I really look at that from people's vantage point, and even underprivileged people, or, I mean, look at what's going on in Ukraine. Yeah. I mean, that to me, and I have a friend in Ukraine who, you know, I emailed out to her and she says, you know, I wake up to shellings and, and bombings. Um, I, I saw her postings on social media showing the wreckage. 
it's it's awful. And then she went off social media and I tried to reach out to her and nothing for a while until she emailed me back and said, we made it to a bomb shelter here at Ukraine. I don't know what the next move is. So there's nothing for me to complain about. Um, I'm just completely thankful. I'm in gratitude for everything that I have. I am. And to be on this planet for the short blip of time that I am. And I really just want to do that good to let other people feel their unlimited full potential, their beauty, um, and infuse that. That's really at the root of everything for me. So I'm curious, you know, the title of your book is The Ultimate Guide to Raising Teens and Tweens, but it's strategies for unlocking your child's full potential. So you're really the audience are those who are raising whether they're their biological or kind of adopted foster grandparents, whatever. Um, so what are some of the, I hate to distill things down into the top tips, but what are some of the main things someone reading that should walk away with or could walk away with and immediately apply to help a teen or a tween who's kind of struggling? Yeah. So as I mentioned, one of the things that I do right away with kids is I try to walk a mile in their shoes. So I try to relate back to them. And in my book, I have the first sections actually called the child, it's the top 10 um, child uh, unlimited strategies. So, and one of them is to, and I pose a ton of questions in there that I ask the adult so they can emotionally go back to that place whether it's kind of hard to deal with or whether it's pretty pleasant to deal with, but it's a day-to-day sort of operations and feeling those struggles. So that's one thing practically they can do. Another thing is actively listening. I think nowadays it's more important than ever to be able to understand how to actively listen. And I, I talk about in my book, something called the REV technique. And that uh, really talks about reflectively listening is the R and then providing empathy is the E. And then listening for validating. Okay, that's really when a person knows. So when you're saying, oh, I understand how you feel, and then you repeat what they say to pull them in, what that does is that shows that you care, that you're listening, you're supportive, and that opens up communication for when times get harder throughout their lives, that they'll be more apt to talk to you about things. And that's really it. You know, some, when they're little children, they could be little problems. When they're bigger children, they could be bigger problems, but not necessarily if the foundation's put in place. So I provide a lot of techniques in there. In my book, I talk about the price technique. Again, another acronym plan words for how to motivate a child, because we know nowadays it's it's not like when you know we were growing up and we're outside and you're playing around and like, all right, time for dinner. Come on in. I mean, my God, I know. I was telling my husband, my mom had a dinner bell and he goes, a dinner bell. I says, well, we were somewhere on the block with the neighborhood kids and you were supposed to show up for dinner. And if someone was with you, whose parents weren't yet home, bring them. We'll just, <laughs> you know, it's like, you're not lit sending them home when we're eating. Right. We'll just add more water to the pasta. Right. I don't. So yeah, it is different. It's very so different. different. And that's and that's it. And so it's it's harder with technology that just continues to exponentially grow. And talking about how to monitor, that's another thing too. So being actively involved, and that might mean for tween and teenagers, that's the years usually they'll get the cell phones, they'll get into more social media, and they have to really understand that what they put online, there's a digital permanence to that. So if parents are friending them or they're on social media, 
I think it's a necessary evil these days that parents should be on there as well. Yeah. It's there's just too much to deal with. So those are some of the things in my book. And then I have in the second half of the book, it's actually called the child limiting challenges. So I talk about the top 10 there from the traditional ones, you know, smoking, drinking, substance abuse, gambling, premature sex, and the list goes on and on. But I also talk about there's now the new age of social media, um, synthetic drug use, and just there's just so much with technology that kids don't know how to handle it. I think parents too, they don't know how to handle it. They sometimes might default to overscheduling their child. And then that doesn't do a, 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 that doesn't kind of a disservice because one time I said to my student, I said, so uh, do you know when you're going to study? Cause she was struggling. I remember on uh, her homework, do you know when you're going to study for this and do some of your homework? And she responds to me and she goes, Oh, I have no idea. My mother has my schedule. And I said, Oh, I said, okay. So I took a step back I said, yeah, I said, okay, it's important that you kind of talk to your mother about that and you understand what's best. And she just kind of looked at me blank. So these kind of things I address in my book and I think it has been helpful. I mean, I've gotten a lot of feedback over the last few years. This book has been out. Um, I've done a lot of speaking events on it too. And I've walked parents through these steps that I'm talking to you about. And, um, and it, what kind it's, of reaction do parents give you? I'm curious. They, they just shake their head. They said, yep, you got it. Yep. <laughs> I see this in the crowd a lot. Yes, you're right. Yeah. And I said, yeah, because, you know, I've taught so many kids and I've coached, I've mentored. This is my wheelhouse, you know, tweens and teens. I've dealt with kids very young and, and all that. And I'm back to school and college. So I see college age as well. But, you know, day to day grind. I mean, I'm in the middle school, high school. That's my bread and butter. And, and, and they agree. They, they see the same problems at home. So let's talk about Butterfield a little bit more. I know it's having its premiere. Um, red carpet, yes? Oh, yes, red carpet. We got the full of velvet stanchion ropes. Oh, get out. That is so fun. And I have to say something. Um, I have to credit the great Ken Fay. Ken really, just to, just to give a little plug to him, he's somebody that has been a talk about a mentor along this process. This is my debut as an official writer director of a short film. And I used to play around as a kid, you know, my cousins would come from, I had a lot of cousins in New York. I'd always bring them together, throw together a script. We'd all act something out and then we'd all crowd around the, the TV. So it'd be our big family looking like, Hey, here's the movie of the year in the summer. So I was always inspired, but Ken really got me focused on here, the need to know things from the start with development, pre-production, production, post-production. Post I mean, we're going to be moving on after the premiere to more film screenings, film festival submissions. Hmm, do I dare say Oscar nominations? <laughs> no. Yeah. At least never know. What comes first, Emmys or Oscars in the sequencing of awards? Oh, so Oscars is movie-based and Emmys, from what I'm told, is like television-based. Okay, so you're not going to screen this on TV, it'll be in theaters? Well, with that being said, you just gave me an idea. <laughs> I'm just thinking you shouldn't limit yourself. You're right, you're right. And you know, Ken is an Emmy Award winning. I know. Himself. So I'll have to talk to him when that time comes. But like you said, no dream is too small. You reach for the stars, you might hit the moon. Yeah. Or you just might surprise yourself. Well, I'm excited about that for you. When can the public, you know, have access and experience the film? Um, and what, so the when, and then when people are done watching it, what do you hope they take away from the 
from the film? Yeah, so the first question I'll answer in terms of when is we're gonna we're working on like movie theaters. My my friend works on Broadway and he knows some people in the theatrical realm. So we're gonna try to get it out in select theaters here in New York and Connecticut. Um, we're gonna have also some other places, some museums, some libraries um, have agreed to show it, which is great. Um, a university agreed as well. And then after we go and exhaust the film festival route. Then at that point, and I think one of the requirements too, if I, if I want to pursue the Oscar realm, which I think I do, then you have to either win a film festival that's accredited under the Academy Awards, or you have to be in a theater for, I think it's like seven straight days on the bill for admission uh, for the public to pay. And then after that's been exhausted, who knows, maybe I'll see if there's any streaming um, places that take short films. And then at that point, I'll probably default it to YouTube and then people get to see it. Well, what's the time horizon on that? Because I'm not in New York to see any of the screenings there you're talking about or what film festivals. So well, I mean, I want to know. Yes, I will tell you, um, we are we're, we're going to go for, of, of course, some of the biggest, you know, Sundance, uh, Cannes, uh, Austin, Sydney, London, Berlin. But we're also going to go for regional ones, uh, local okay. ones. Yeah, and uh, and and we'll we'll see kind of how it all pans out. But yeah, I, I, I in your second question, I, I, I was alluding me. You had a second part. I know there. I shouldn't ask compound questions. I'm mm -hmm. I, I do that all the time, and I think it's just mean, but I do it anyway <laughs> no. um, because I'm afraid I'll forget the question. But um, what I asked was when people walk out from having viewed your film, what do you want them to take with them? I'd like them to take with them the fact that no matter what's going on in your life, if you've lost a loved one, if you felt isolated, down on your luck, picked on, bullied, if you feel anxious, you feel depressed, you feel like things will never change in your favor, you're never alone. There's going to be someone in some capacity in the physical realm and the non-physical realm there to guide you. Life is not just about hitting the bottom. But when you do hit the bottom, you have so much more to experience on the up and up. And that's what I want people to walk away with. And it might take more than just one time watching this short film. And that's why I wanted to put in those nuances and those analogies and symbolism so they can go back and catch that time after time. Well, and don't forget, you, you could turn it into a book for those of us who read, or you could do it audio. Just giving you some things when you're like, yeah. you don't have so much time, you know, I'm thinking, well, in your spare time. Um, yeah, that's a great idea. I love that idea. I'll definitely consider that. Well, when you do, please let me know, because I am on Audible Books all the time. So, I certainly will. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. I, I'm great coming up with ideas for other people. And my own list is long. So, um, <laughs> Doug, I'm super happy to have met you. I will personally thank Ken for the introduction again. Folks listening, check out Doug. We will have his social media links in the show notes. So just go there. You'll find out where you can find Doug and his work. Um, his book will be linked there as well as whatever he allows us to share. I know there's a little snippet trailer for Butterfield that we can see. We'll put that in there. Um, Ken, Ken showed me that a long time ago. I'm thinking, oh, Ken, he's your champ. Um, but anyway, check it out in the show notes. And if you found this interview with Doug Haddad, please, or Haddad, say your last name again. Yeah, Haddad, you got Haddad. it. Haddad, I don't know why I wanna say ha, it's like Nevada, Nevada. Haddad, 
Um, if you found it helpful to you, if you made you think of yourself as a young person or you know somebody who is going through that now or a parent of someone who's going through it, please share the interview with them. Have them reach out to Doug and get his book as a starting point. And then when you can, see the film. So Doug, with that, I'm just going to wish you all the best and I will be watching for you showing up in film festivals. Oh, and you sending me a personal note saying, oh, by the way, the audiobook is now available. Absolutely. I definitely will. Uh, and, and Sarah, could I just uh, also refer your audience to my official website? Yes, please. Okay. So they can go to www. And I have two URLs. It's either Doug Haddad, if you just want to type that in, or Douglas Haddad. And that's H-A-D-D-A-D. I do have a couple of blogs on there. So if you're looking for some quick information, some articles, I do have a blog called the, um, oh, I just forgot, oh, the Well Parent. And that's for just overall wellness. So, and then there's one called the Whole Child. So everything about your child to make them holistically, um, you know, really well. And then I also have a 25 page free whole lot of living guide, which goes through really what I call, you know, the super health formula. And that's to eat well, exercise well, think well, and sleep well. And as a result, you'll hopefully feel well. So that's all, right. all on my website. I love it. Okay, so that's a free resource that we can all get right now. We don't have to wait for it. Nope, go right to the website. Yeah. And if you like what you see, I also do coaching on the side. So that would, that's on my website. So if you're interested to work one-on-one -on -one with me, I've done life coaching. I've done you know parenting, family coaching. So that's also available on my website. So Doug, once you get to your website, you can get where you need to go. Absolutely. All right. So this is the key takeaway audience. Doug or Douglas Haddad, go there. You can get everywhere else you need to. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. Me too. You've been listening to the No Labels, No Limits podcast with best-selling author, change agent, and strategic vision coach, Sarah Box. You can grab the show notes and find out how to work with Sarah at sarahbox.com forward slash no labels, no limits podcast. We'd love this podcast to reach as many people as possible. So please remember to rate, leave a five-star review and share the podcast with someone you think would get value from this conversation. Until next time, keep taking those daily action steps to align your purpose to your principles and achieve your goals in business and life.